0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station.
1: By the book on BFM 89.9.
0: It would make sense if I went on and spoke as what I am, a writer. A writer of science fiction. A woman writer of science fiction. You know, I am a very rare creature. My species was at first believed to be mythological, like the Tribble and the Unicorn. The, the Earthsea books as a feminist literature are a total, complete bust from my own archetypes and from my own cultural upbringing. I couldn't go down deep and come up with a woman wizard. Maybe I'll learn to eventually, but when I wrote those, I couldn't do it. I wish I could have.
1: Hello, everyone. You're listening to Buy the Book with me, Sharmila Ganesan. And as always, my fellow reader of female writers, Lee Chui Lin. And woman. Hello. (laughs) Yes, I I thought I'd go with that and then I thought it was a bit derpy. I pulled back. But okay, we're there for it. Um, So this show is in conjunction with International Women's Day, which takes place every year on the 8th of March. So we thought we'd dedicate today's discussion to the notion of reading more female writers. Um, And for that, we are joined by uh, Zidek Siu, who is himself a writer uh, as well as an avid reader. Zidek, thanks for joining us today.
0: Uh, hi, thanks for having me. I'm also, uh, I'm also male, so.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, so that now we've established. <laughs> um, I thought the good, the best place to start would actually be a question I found my, I found myself asking, which was, when did you first, or when did, when did each of us first realize, the gender of the writer that we were reading, or when did that become a thing? Because. Um, Weirdly enough, I think it took me quite a while. And in fact, a lot of the writers I used to read as a, as a child, uh, Enid Blyton, for instance, or Ella Montgomery, I didn't even realise they were women um, until a little bit later. Um, and so I think the issue of reading a particular gender was a non-issue until much later for me personally.
2: Yeah, uh, I definitely hear you on that front. I was thinking about this uh, in the context of two things, right? When I became aware of the gender of the writers I was reading, but also aware of when I was reading books with girls uh, as main characters and and things like that, because I think that's quite distinct, right? You can have, I'm thinking of something like Alice in Wonderland, you can have um, a central female character that is not written by a woman. And, you know, it it takes a while for those kinds of things to creep up on you. I think um, it didn't used to... It's not something that I consciously thought about, I think, until I was well into my teens, most likely. Um, And that's partly because I think when you're a kid or if you grew up a child who is also a voracious reader, you end up just wanting to get your little paws on anything that you can get. And you're not necessarily being discerning about, oh, okay, this person is, you know, X, Y, Z, or I've read this person before. So it took me quite a while.
0: Like, I'm trying to see whether my experience gels with that because I... I, mean, I I also want to say that it didn't really matter or I, wasn't, I just wasn't really aware, but I'm also questioning myself because I definitely know that at some point in my life, I don't know when I became aware of this, that I was, I think you just grew up with it as a sort of background radi- radiation where it's like, oh, you know, like uh, this this book was written by a woman not so interesting the story, you know? Mm. Um, and that's a kind of prejudice that, I think I definitely, because I grew up loving Priscilla Le Guin, uh, besides uh, the sort of Enid Blighton's, uh when I first became conscious of reading, it was Tolkien and, and Le Guin, but I think she stood out because it was in the way of like, oh, she was an exception. She was so good that it didn't matter. But I think that there, there is a built-in, it comes from just growing up in patriarchy where
2: Actually, I wanted to add on to that because the whole notion of uh, interesting was one that I was thinking about a lot and how um, it felt as if a lot of the more adventure or plot-driven kinds of stories that I read growing up, which I think will be the ones that you most naturally gravitate to when you first start reading, right? You want to know what's going to happen, how is this going to end, um, and and that's really the main driver for you. I think a lot of the other stuff like uh, language or a love of words, you know, comes along the way, but you start with the story. And so I was thinking about exactly that earlier, that for the longest time, I thought that stories written by women were not as interesting or not as plot driven or not as action driven. And, and that's, you know, kind of nuts if you think about it. It's not really mm. anything that comes from anywhere. And yet it's very much a perception. And And I think a little bit of it maybe comes also from when we're introduced to the classics and
0: if we yeah. compare
2: and contrast, say, your Austens and your Brontes and women sitting around having conversation, stitching, compared to the men who got to ride horses and go hunting. And, you know, mm. it just that kind of division really sets you up from the beginning.
0: Mm. I, and there's also the thing about, I, I, do, I, I, think, I, I think there is a, like, what is interesting and what is action? Uh, because these books, like the Jane Austen novels, are not plot-like and are not action-like. But there's a particular... weird. I think growing up, definitely, it's a, it's a particular kind of action that's coded as interesting versus other sort of actions which are discounted.
1: I think the other thing, of course, is that women's stories are almost inevitably about the things women are often not allowed to do. So the lack of action is actually because the women in those stories were not allowed to do the kinds of things men mm. could do, right? Um, yep. And so even though it may not be about that, it is also about that. It's it's almost defined by the lack. Um, and for a person growing up, of course, you would rather read about the guy who's, you know, venturing out into the Amazon or whatever. And even when I think about the female characters or the books written by women that I um, glommed onto to and, and sort of held up, um, it was always the women who didn't hew to that expected life. So Anne of Green Gables or you know, Jo from Little Women. Um, and these are all stories of women who railed against that expected uh, life that a woman was allowed to lead. So it is I, re- I realise that actually when we make these these distinctions between women may not write action-driven stories, I think partly it's because for a very long time, women were often not allowed to even consider that they could, dis- they could um, live those lives. And when they wanted to write about those lives, it becomes almost defined by the struggle to live that life as much as it is about the adventure itself.
2: So I don't know if we... Necessarily want to go there this early, but the other thing I was thinking about was genre, um, and it's related to this, right? And especially because you bring up Joe and Joe wanting to be a writer and what kind of book Joe wanted to write, and I think that uh, as a reader, when I was younger, aside from thinking about female-driven or female-written books as being duller right? Not necessarily as as action-packed. The other thing I thought of was that they were simply all romances. And and that's also unfair in the sense that not all romances are made equal. They're not all bodice rippers and, you know, uh, it's, it's not all the same. And yet because of that and because I was a um, young girl, young woman wanting to read and wanting to read seriously, sometimes I found myself shying away from romance as an entire genre um, or from quote-unquote chick lit as an entire genre. And and that I don't think is necessarily fair or even um, even a particularly educated point of view. It's just something that comes about because, again, of whose names you see on the book covers in which part of the bookstores and, you know, who gets to
1: populate what. You write genres, Zedek, and, and I know you mentioned Ursula K. Le Guin already, um, and you read a lot of it also. Was there a point at which you actually saw this kind of divide?
0: So the, there is a very actually, Le Guin is kind of emblematic of this for me because when I was when I was a teenager, like early, like a preteen, basically, I, I, I read Earthsea, and Earthsea is, I mean, it, it is an adventure story. Uh, it is very Tao, It is very Taoist and non-standard adventure story because the the people in power in those books are. The greatest source of um, the greatest thing that they can do is not exercise power. So that was very interesting, right? So, so it, obviously, I love the books a lot, and um, so the first three books are about this uh, this male sort of protagonist who is growing up and uh, who is um, saving the world, and who loses uh, his his power when he saves the world. So, okay, that's fine and all like rip-roaring, like, ooh, so like, intense. And then there's the fourth book. The fourth book is a, is a deliberate pivot, um, which Le Guin wrote quite a while after the first three, and, and kind of in conversation with the, the, the stories that women can be part of and can tell, and what happens after power. So the fourth book is kind of, is told from the perspective of a, of a female character. And deals with the main protagonist of the three books, losing power, living with losing power, and her having to take care of this basically, this guy who, that, who has lost his ability to be, to exercise patriarchal uh, privilege. When I was a preteen, I thought that this was really boring. Like, nothing happens in this book. It's just about a woman in a village taking care of a, a guy who doesn't do anything except complain. At that point in our, in my life at least i wasn't able to relate to you know their struggles and then their struggles and i think like these things especially the sort of gender roles and like uh, what stories are are valued over other stories why do we why do we love the king more than the queen or or even the, the sort of uh farm wife? when their stories are equally as, as, as interesting and also realer, and as eventful, as, as important, right. To keep the house when the people going off on that, are, I I only started loving it in my late twenties and it is my favorite book of this whole series now because it is about something that doesn't happen because things are not allowed to happen because of what it is, uh, And that not happening or those, that small story is kind of the point of the entire series.
1: We're talking about uh, female writers, uh, books written by women. And that's because uh, it's International Women's Day on the 8th of March. So we thought we'd dedicate our show today uh, to the notion of reading more female writers. Let us know who are your favorites. We'd love some recommendations. You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my.
0: Bodacious, fabulous minds. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Your book, Girl, Woman, Other, um, one of the characters, Carol, uh, is unhappy at university, uh, uh, university and her mother lists some women, black women, who were the first to do certain things. And when you stood up on that stage at the Guildhall, you said that you were the first black woman to win yes. the Booker Prize and, in fact, the first uh, black British author to win. Yes. So, you have joined this sort of panoply of, of <laughs> women who are now sort of there as, as a, a sort of a marker for others.
1: I did say that, and I'm really glad I said that because people don't know. You know, they, they, most people didn't know that we'd never won it. Mm-hmm. So, they need to know that somebody has. I remember when Toni Morrison died, people would say, she was the first black woman to win the Nobel Prize. No, she was the only black woman to win the Nobel Prize, and that right. was nearly 30 years ago. Right. You know, so until we get the kind of statistics and the numbers, you never quite know what the reality is for, say, you know, certain kind of marginalised communities. Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn. And today we're joined by writer ZXU. And together we are... Discussing the uh, act, the radical act apparently, of reading more female authors. Uh, And that's because March 8th is International Women's Day. Uh, And so we thought um, we would essentially dedicate our show to female writers. And I wanted to pick up on this side of things uh, by, I think, in a way, extending something we've been talking about already, which is um, do you guys consciously try to read more? Female writers, because um, I have to admit that's only something I started doing uh, fairly recently, perhaps not, perhaps even as recently as less than 10 years ago. Um, and primarily because I realized that when you don't consciously do that, uh, it's actually very easy to not, if that makes sense.
2: I've gone too far. I've gone too far. So um, it also started for me in the last five to ten years. And now I find that um, I can come back from bookstores with an entire catalogue or like an entire bunch of new books. And there's not a man to be seen. And then I think, oh, I don't know when exactly this happened. I'm not exactly sure what it is. I think at this point, um, like you, I had to make a conscious decision and effort, part of that is, um, I think, switching off the expectation of, for example, reading your way through those lists of 100 books you have to read before blah, 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 because those classics are often, well, um, I think done with a certain slant and also prioritise a certain type of classics. So uh, once I rid myself of the I must read Roth, um, you know, (laughs) that that kind of thing. Um, I I allowed myself to just kind of dive into others. And then I also found that it's a little bit of a... A self-perpetuating thing because if you read, for example, short story collections and then you think, oh, this writer is interesting and I see that she's written books. I want to go look at that. Um, if you see the people that they cite as influences and so on and so forth, you kind of expand out. And from there, I think it's now got to do with the kinds of themes and stories that I'm personally more invested in um, I and so what I find recently is that yeah I'm, I'm actually reading a lot of women and I I'm really enjoying it
0: uh, I I'm not sure that there was a point when I said or oh, I've got to start reading more women uh, because they, they uh, women have always kind of been part of unusually or uh, not that this was the case uh, this happened to be the case but I think what what has happened is that I consciously reading, circling back to what we were talking before, you can also read women all the time, but also not pay attention. Like, I, when I first arrived in KL, like, I mean, like, wow, well, a few decades ago now, um, I was, I, I met a local writer who, who quipped that, oh, women don't know how to write. Uh, and I never found out whether he was joking. And I never bothered to, but I think it, it really drove home that you can you can be a voracious reader of women and not not read women, yeah, uh, mm. yeah. So I think uh, that that is something I've been consciously doing uh, at least in, since my late twenties onwards.
2: Um, I wanted to say that I think it's also not just about reading female authors, but being conscious, to that point about consciousness, uh, of being conscious of the way female characters are written because there is often a distinction between how um, how male writers write female characters and how female writers write female characters, which is again not to say that men cannot write women well. I think that there are actually a fair number of men who write women well just as there are women who write men well. It's not exclusive to gender in that way. But um, I think just being aware of of the gaze, uh, I was. I've been following along on a random Instagram read along of somebody rereading a Christopher Pike, who is a a writer I enjoyed a lot when I was a teenager, and um, and now looking at it through the lens of a thirty something year old woman who is the person doing the read along, the amount of um, the amount of ways in which teenage girls, for example, are sexualized in very specific ways or or, Mm. um, portrayed in very specific ways. Not something that I picked up on. And I, like I said, I really loved Christopher Pike. And so, yeah, I, I found it interesting to sometimes go back and recalibrate um, even for writers that I really enjoy, the difference in the way that they write female characters. Because aside from representation in terms of who you read, I think it's also about how you see yourself represented in a text. And yeah, some people really do it better or differently than others.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a very good point. Uh, this has been my biggest struggle as, or like one of one of my biggest struggles as as a person who writes. First of all, accepting that. Hey, what do you mean? I don't know how to write women. Of course I know how to write women, but accepting that that's not the case. And I didn't know, uh, and then learning how to, uh, because you're right in that these things are invisible, especially for someone like me who is, who has the, the privilege to, for this to go completely under the radar. Uh, except if you have collaborators who are pointed out to you, which, and they do do great service. It's not something that I could have discovered by myself. So Yeah, I totally agree
1: with this point. And and on that point, actually, I have a a theory also that because by and large so much of what people read are about men, men who want to write about women, or to that point, even women who want to write about women who may not necessarily be like themselves, um, actually takes a little bit more work. Um, Hmm. That's not to say that you you don't need to be thoughtful when you write a male character. But I think there's so many iterations of male characters across so many different kinds of literature, that actually there are frames that you can refer to, which is why often, when women write men, they don't feel I'm I'm drawing a very broad stroke here, and I don't really intend to. Um, But I think I think that point about when male male writers decide to write women, um, why it's actually a little bit more difficult is, A, firstly, you may not have read enough of a variety of women to have a frame. And two, as you said, that kind of intentional reading of women, i.e. paying attention to um, both how women might write and how women are written off, is important and is an act that all of us collectively, I think, are actually still learning to do. Mm. Um, and and I, mean, I mean, that's kind of what this show is structured around, right? Because I think about Diana Wynne-Jones, who's one of my favorite female writers ever, even now. Um, And she writes children in middle grade fantasy, right? She's probably the first writer that I realized was a woman. And that's only because of her name on the cover. Um, And then I went, wait, women write fantasy as well? Women write these kinds Mm -hmm. of girls can do these things in these books. Um, And that was a, a real Pivot for me because until I read her, um, most of the fantasy I had read, read was either Enid Blyton and so squarely children um, or were written by men. Um, and so I I think, like Le Guin, Dinah Wynne Jones are all people for whom, if you get to them early enough, can actually be a really formative experience to
0: read. Again, the, the fourth Ursi book, Tehanu, is a good example because it was written because Le Guin wanted to learn how to tell a fantasy story focused on a female character and a female story uh, with that book. Uh, so even even a figure like Le Guin needed to learn, because unlearning is a civilizational issue. I mean, this is a civilizational problem, uh, really takes that amount of effort.
2: I wanted to raise the point about reading difficult women, uh, because I think that that's actually a part of the, the sometimes the transition that needs to be made when you go from reading a genre sometimes, uh, be primarily male writers writing about uh, female characters. And I think the first time you read a uh, a book featuring a difficult female protagonist is a very interesting learning experience because it's worth asking yourself why you don't like this person <laughs> or uh, not only why you don't like this person but do you actually dislike this person or are you merely uncomfortable with the way that they're behaving and i think getting that distinction is is also crucial because when i think about the the things that have really changed my mind or uh shaped the way i think about female characters or the way that reading has in fact informed my own life. A lot of it comes down to difficult women and in fact difficult girls. Uh, you mentioned Anne of Green Gables and um, you know Shyamala you and I have spoken enough everyone knows she's like the the flag on our ship. Um, so there's, there's her uh, but there's also just all sorts of people. There's Ramona Quimby, there's Harriet the Spy, there are all these female characters girls who are inquisitive and kind of precocious and annoying and you know people around them don't seem to get them uh are you there god it's me margaret we spoke about that recently you know just that idea of a female character a a young girl in particular most interestingly who decides actually i don't want to do this and it's not even in the like you said running off and you know living on a pirate ship kind of rebellion. It's a smaller rebellion. It's the idea of, you know, I I don't think I want to smile at that boy today. I just don't. And reading that, I think, sets you up later in life for, say, your Margaret Atwoods and, you know, uh, that kind of thing. I I do think that there is a direct through line from difficult girls in uh, childhood and adolescent reading
1: all the way to complicated women in literary fiction. Oh, hundred percent. Um I wanted to I wanted to just name check Naughtiest girl in school and Daryl Daryl Rivers, both Enid Blyton, uh, you know, complicated girls. Um but I, I I do think, right, as you were talking, it got me thinking. Um, I loved those books, right? I also loved books about boys. Um, So there were books that centered boys that I had no issues reading as a child. And I took what I wanted or what related to me to from those stories. But it strikes me that I didn't know very many boys who would read these girl books. Um, and, And I've often wondered whether that's something that happens because the people in their lives generally tell them that these are girl books, and so you shouldn't read them and they're not for you. In a way that People tend not to tell girls because I don't think anyone ever told me, why are you reading Hardy Boys? They're for boys. Um, but I do think the opposite does happen to boys quite a bit. And then I'm going to put Zedek on the spot by asking um, whether there was such a notion as a boys book for you.
0: I think this is the reason why this question is actually reviews and its truth. It's because there was a notion of good books and bad books. You wouldn't read girl books because they were bad books. I think that's the that's just the, that's just the way we were. I I was I, I absorb things from my surroundings. So it's like it's it's not because the story wasn't necessarily for me. Is that this story is not a good story, uh, which is a which is a tragedy.
1: I wanted to wrap up the conversation uh, just with recommendations, really, of either authors or books. Um, written by women that we love and that we really want others to read.
0: I've got really quick ones. So, like when I've talked about too much already, but she, she is relevant to, like, kind of in this current climate because she's got a series of stories set in a fictional Eastern European country called Orsinia. And her last story I love because of the title, uh, Unlocking the Air When the Regime Falls. Uh, the other one is... Uh, uh, poet laureate Serena Hassan who is a wonderful poet um, who writes very very uh, subtly but also very sharply about things like politics and like our a uh, worshiping of the feudal uh, aristocracy and all that kind of things uh, she's very lovely any any collection of hers is worth picking up um, there is a uh, there is a, in indigenous Canadian writer called, uh, Siri Dimaline, uh, yeah. So I, I really love the Marrow Thieves, uh, because, um, it kind of is a stand sort of standard generic young adult sort of, uh, fantasy narrative post apocalyptic narrative. But then you realize that it is actually, a, a essentially a true story, like residential schools were a real thing. So it kind of like has this tinge of like you realize that this story is heavier than you ever thought it would be. So I, I, it, it's just a really powerful travel log. Um, and also, in an, another example, where sort of reading, it's not just women that we need that, that we should read. It's like indigenous writers. It's uh, people from other sort of identities being able to uh, read those uh, read those stories. Uh, the last one is uh, Shivani Sivakurunadan, who is from my hometown. I mean, my, the town where I live, uh, Padjadjaran. Who had, and she has a new novel out called Yalpanum, and it's kind of like about place. So it's about Padjadjaran, but it's also about, also about the imagination of home and Malaysia, which is which is always very something that we need to think about more. So yeah we no, just
1: sorry. we just interviewed shivani Sivagurunathan. if you're interested to check out that oh. um I have a couple of quick recommendations on that on that um, on that point about reading more diverse books and you know women but also women from different backgrounds. Nnedi um, Okorafor is one of my favourite fantasy writers. She's Nigerian and she um, yeah she essentially writes science fiction and fantasy uh, from a sort of very Afrofuturist lens, which I love. I also wanted to recommend a book that we've actually discussed on the show before, uh, "Girl, Woman, Other" by Bernard neveristo everything that Lynn you mentioned earlier complicated women difficult women women that are not always easy to like but so strongly about the stories of women um, a local writer Zen Cho, that has come up on our show a lot um, if you haven't if you haven't read uh, a Malaysian speculative fiction book or story she I would highly recommend you can start with her and Kureli Manikavil, who is a South Indian uh, writer of short stories Um mm just sort of weird, odd little stories that are just such a great read.
2: Those are lovely. Uh, none of us have mentioned Chimamanda. So I'm just going to throw that in yes. there, that if you have not read Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie, that, you know, this is now as good a time as any. Uh, but I, I wanted to say on that note about reading uh, difficult topics or going in the deep end on the ideas of uh, femininity and of uh, the body and empathy some of the people that I've been finding really interesting I've talked about her before, Carmen Maria Machado who writes a lot of um, sort of almost magic realism tinged stories but very much to do with the physical experience of being a woman uh, alongside the emotional side of it all Um, I've also been interested in Helen Oyayemi for many of the same reasons, I think she covers a lot of that ground as well. I've mentioned Camilla Shamsi on the show um, and she's a writer that I've been enjoying a lot um, and and also for that same reason of not necessarily just representing a uh, hyper you know Caucasian European kind of point of view so uh, just that handful of authors the other thing is um, I think if you want to if you're somebody who's recognizing that hey I haven't read a lot of women um, you know it's just not something that I've, I've done I would actually also say maybe a memoir is a good place to start. And for that reason, uh, I was thinking about The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls, which was then made into not that great a film. If you watch the film and you didn't appreciate it, it's fine. Just ignore it, put it past and then, you know, go back to the book, which was really beautifully written. Um, And I was also thinking about Mary Carr and her various biographies, whether it's uh, Liars Club or Cherry, because I think that there's no better way to you know get into the deep end of reading women writing about women than perhaps uh,
1: than perhaps autobiographies actually if we're talking about bio- autobiographies i just wanted to quickly jump in and say nora efron who's mm. uh, so much fun to read so funny um and that's it really we've been celebrating international women's day which of course falls on the 8th of march by dedicating our show to female writers zedek thanks so much for joining us for this Thanks for having me. Let us know who are your favourite uh, female writers. What are some books that you'd like to recommend? You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. to footnotes um, where we're talking about something we've been sort of geeking out about for a couple of months now uh, and finally found the space to talk about it so uh, there is a a library in uh, the UK that found what they're calling the largest treasure trove of literary heritage um, ever found and it needed rescuing and now the rescuing has happened
2: yes it's a it's a rather lovely story so in case you're wondering it's the we're guessing here, Honor's Field Library. Um, that's spelled Hon H O N R E H-O-N-R-E-S-F-I-E-L-D in case we are massively mispronouncing it and you would like to Google and find yourself unable to look. Anyway, uh, we're talking about the Honor's Field Library and I mean, it's so... So it, it it sounds like the kind of thing that a novel would have been written about because essentially it was basically inaccessible for like 80 years right um and yet within it there are handwritten Jane Austen letters there are manuscripts by the Brontes with annotations by one another there is uh, the entire working manuscript of Sir Walter Scott yes. like there's a bunch of stuff in there and the fear here was that it was going to be parceled up and
1: auctioned off into private hands and thus lost to the public forever. So then someone started a movement to essentially recover and rescue um, all of these things to be able to uh, have them for public view and for the general public to be able to access it. And so um, all these different people came together so half of that amount um, came from Sir Leonard Blavatnik who is the richest man in the UK Um, and then the National Heritage Memorial Fund put in money and the remainder were actually uh, raised through various organisations, literary organisations, reading organisations And just private individual donations. And they all put together 15 million in uh, under five months, acquired this entire collection and now are going to make it available uh, in various libraries and museums across the, the country. And what a lovely story.
2: It is a lovely story. I do think, however, that there are a few things that you can take away from it, depending on who you are and what you prioritise. Because to me, at least, the heart of this story is the importance of libraries and of sharing. Because... uh, the, the, okay. In all the stories you can read about this, private collectors are referred to with almost a kind of horror. I know, <laughs> I
1: know. They it's sound like, like people sitting in the dark with their grubby fingers le- reaching out to grab these manuscripts.
2: Even Sotheby's, like, who would be responsible for getting it into these people, are like, yeah, you know, private collectors, am I right? And I'm thinking, well, that's who you deal with. But anyway, so yes, uh, private collectors are clearly referred to as the, the villains of the piece. And I, I don't, I mean, I think that that's because of the idea that... that art can be kept and tucked away if you have enough money and that uh, it can be something you own when in fact it is part of the literary heritage of A, the world and B, specifically the United Kingdom. Because a lot of this is uh, very UK-based, right? It's 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 a UK story and the authors that we're talking about are all also from the country. And so, yeah, I think that for me, at least, it's the beauty of libraries and of sharing things that should be in the public domain, that, that is art that is part of the actual national intangible cultural heritage of a country.
1: I think it's also the assumption that when it does go into the hands of these "quote unquote" private collectors, um, <laughs> that that no one else is going to be able to access them, right? Um, mm. Which which isn't always true because there are many collectors who are quite generous with the things they've purchased, but who it, loan it out, who loan like it that, out yes. and stuff like that. But but I think that there is this notion of uh, accessibility and a shared heritage, and um, I mean. Look, I think museums should be free. I think art should be accessible to all. So clearly, I, I know where I fall in this argument. Um, I also know that it's not always practical to rely entirely on um, publicly funded institutions or, um, you know, of the like to to be able to fund these things. So the fact that this happened through some combination of crowdfunding and, and organizations coming together and a patron, um, I mean, I think there's something quite sweet about it. I also think that it goes back to the to the idea of um, what we what we think these things are in the first place. What place What place do they hold in our collective imaginations? Our idea of culture, because um, I mean, I know what how special it is to be able to walk into a library and look at the first folio that Shakespeare wrote, for instance, um, and. To know that that belongs to everyone, I think, changes how you relate to it versus this belongs to someone who's incredibly rich, who can keep it in their vault or villain's lair or whatever it is you imagine it is
2: it's a it's a heartwarming story, but I think, as with anything else, uh, when there's crowdfunding involved, there is also sometimes the question of why it was that crowdfunding was necessary and uh, why it was that the library in the first place was so underserved or you know why it needed rescuing and so uh, like I said, I think we're circling the same point, which is about the importance of public funding. For the arts, right, and and public support for libraries, and we're talking about this in the U, uh, about this in the United Kingdom, where it's actually even less of an issue than it is here. So I think um, when I when I consider the comparison between the UK and Malaysia and the focus that is placed on libraries and archiving and things like that, um, I do think that. I don't know. I know this is very far down our priority list, but I, I would love to see more public funding and support for
1: for the arts and for making the arts actually accessible to everyone, like you said. And not just when things are dire and are about to shut mm. down, but continuous public funding so that they can be maintained and, and uh, even grown. Let us know, are libraries important to you? When was the last time you visited one? You can WhatsApp us 018 789 8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us and buy the book at BFM.my.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to BFM.my or find us on iTunes, BFM 89.9, the business station.